Confronted with my own inadequacies, I instinctively retreat to the refuge of memories, a place where I can modulate the texture of my past, an opportunity to forever loop the moments which my beliefs are forever tethered to. The moments which my beliefs are tethered to. Forever loop the moments which my It is the memories I draw upon to give me the silent nod of approval I need to move forward. Not because I'm tapping into some reserve of motivation, but as a sense of obligation to my past self. To that child so convinced of her own exceptionality, everything around her only served as a confirmation of her somehow destined place. In my naivety, I thought my combination of idiosyncrasies would be sufficient for me to succeed. If I'd known work ethic was three quarters of the battle, maybe I wouldn't have been so optimistic. Where do they go? Those childhood gusts of joy and certainty as we imagine what our lives will materialize to be. What happens to all of those one-man shows we starred and directed in? Those languorous afternoons in the backseat of the family car as we stared out of the window with a sense of melancholy that hadn't yet, but eventually, swallowed us whole. Sometimes I imagine running out of my house, grabbing the first person I see, and shaking them by the shoulders, and asking them how it is we're all supposed to carry on. How is it we are aware, even distantly, of our own mortality, but just carry on, as if it's all fine somehow? How is it that we were all children once, some of us at the same time, and yet we can't reach out and access the afterglow of that innocence within each other? Tell me what you were like as a child. Do you remember holding your parents' hand? Or the time you made your entire class at school laugh? Those tiny but delicious shocks of transgression you felt the first time you swore aloud with conviction, making yourself cry by imagining your parents dying. The first time you made a schedule of things for yourself and crossed off a to-do list, assured the rest of your life would unfold just the same way. I remember. I remember. And I almost wish I didn't. Okay, so obviously you have to pick up and be like, hey, so bring, 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 bring. Bring, 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 bring. Uh, guten Tag. So what's going on, dude? How's this, uh, how's this little podcast thing you got going on? We're all, uh, we're all waiting. Uh, great <laughs> anticipation. Huge. Uh, you know, it's all over the interwebs. <laughs> you know, seven months in the making. Only been, only been seven months. So you know, I'm sure you'll get something done at some point. I mean, I've been thinking about it for 10 years, so considering the amount of progress I've made in the last few months, I'd say it's a net win. <laughs> I, I do suppose when you set the expectations so low, any any product 
productivity towards your goal can be considered an accomplishment. So, you know, yeah, let's put it into that positive light. I think that's the right. <laughs> yeah, dude. So here's the, here's my issue. My issue is how much do I, how honest and open should I be? The way, the way I see it is that you are, you are a desperate man, you know, and, and you're in a corner. And I, I think at that moment, you have not only so little left to lose, well, you have so little left to use, you need to use all of it. But but what if some of these memories are things that I want to put behind me and then by talking about them, I'm somehow, they're like materializing again in my life, even if as, you know, an ephemera. I mean, t- to me, it feels like the chain to your past is still solidly tied around your legs. And I don't think ignoring the anchor dragging you down, or rather holding you down, you're already at rock bottom. It would be a, it would be misleading to suggest it's further pulling you you, you under. I mean, yeah, so you need to aim to achieve social standing and and fulfillment of an ang- translucent angler fish living at the second deepest part of the ocean. I think, and that the only way to get there is to really confront you know some of these experiences you're thinking about. So you think I should even talk about? That psychotic break that I had in second year when that dude misprescribed me Zopiclon because I couldn't sleep. So I went to that emergency clinic. Blaming psychiatric professionals for your own personal failures is is really hot right now. And I think you need to seize that trend as much as possible and make it work for you. Okay, so ride the medical malpractice wave. Ride uh, the, the pretend medical malpractice wave, yes. What about the thing where Mark and I would uh, dissolve powdered Xanax into 40-proof alcohol and then squirt it into people's mouth with syringes at parties? Do you think that's something that the people are... For the record, you, you squirt it into your own mouth more than anyone else's. So I think we need to establish that. You're, you're making it sound like you're some kind of like Cupid floating around shooting love arrows at people. Point being is don't ascribe unearned benevolence to yourself. For all we know, one of those men who had experienced, you know, recreational painkillers for the first time, developed a taste for it, you know, and and went down a dark, terrible path that ruined his life. But for some reason, we're not going to use this as an opportunity to blame you. You know, I think that's also worth reflecting on. Thanks for bringing that up. I think that's that's a worthy consideration. And I will be ruminating on that for some time to come. I think, I think I got, I think, I think you gave me what I need. I think this was really helpful. And um, thank you for helping me visualize my circumstances as far as the angler fish analogy goes. It's, it's much easier for me to, you know, take stock of my circumstances. There's a lot of other, you know, examples in, in the ecosystem that I think we can compare you to, uh, you know, in future episodes, for example, um, like a sloth, you know, a sloth is, you know, appears completely useless and has appears to have little agency, but in fact, it plays a very critical role in, in its local ecosystem by providing a home to a lot of fungus and bacteria. And maybe that's what you're doing with your podcast, right? You, through this podcast, are providing a home for, for other bacteria and mold to live off of. And it creates a c- cocoon around you. Because if you have these listeners and you have a small following through your podcast, 
it, it protects you protects you from complete irrelevance. That's great. I'm I'm writing all of this down. I I want to make sure I get all of it. Thank you. Um. Well, I I, I think I'm gonna go now. You know, a tapeworm, for example, might also be another. <laughs> Memory transfer. C'est toi. C'est toi. Proximate, I think, is perhaps the vision that Spike Jones offers in her with Joaquin Phoenix character who establishes uh, an intimate relationship with what's called an OS, but it's really an AI, a, a non-embodied AI, voiced by Scarlett Johansson. The, the, the turning point in the narrative of this film is when he realizes that she has many thousands of intimate relationships just like the one she has with him. And that shouldn't be so surprising. Because when you start going down this road of trying to establish relationships with non-human intelligences, why should you have the expectations that you have with human intelligences? They are quite distinct forms of life. read somewhere that our memory of an event is altered every time we remember it. Our life a game of broken telephone we play with ourselves. Our memories distorting so much over time they change entirely, their grooves and crevices so worn with wear they no longer resemble their original form. When you realize your brain is made of Swiss cheese, and your memory is the equivalent of that shockingly bad restoration of a Jesus fresco, you decide you won't go quietly into that good night. You start thinking of your memories with him as precious goods that should only be reached for when absolutely necessary, as if they were jars of pickled carrots, or beets, or whatever root vegetable crunchy people on blogs brag about stowing away for wintertime consumption. As an aside for any younger listener who has somehow wandered in here, the limp vegetables are a metaphor for any former love interests you may have had. That boy who made fun of your hairy arms at summer camp? He's a turnip now. And a turnip so distasteful, he reaches middle age without anyone being able to last more than a couple of years with him at a time. Of course, he never takes responsibility for his part in any of this, such as his curse. And the girl who gave you nothing but looks of utter disdain for the entire three years you were secretly in love with her? Also a turnip but an extra offensive one with no redeeming qualities whatever, either in form or taste. Amazingly, turnips have near-universal application to any case. Listen, we're not reinventing the wheel when we're anthropomorphizing those we once loved as produce. Winter time. You remember driving from Montreal to New York through Vermont in the middle of the night one January years ago. You made him pull over so you could get out of the car and act out some self-aware manic pixie dream girl fantasy. And also because the view truly was beautiful. You played music you were desperate to share with him. You did your best to not betray your excitement about your favorites so he didn't feel obligated to say he liked them. Not necessarily for his sake, 
but for your own desire to assess your compatibility. Later, you smoked the joints you'd rolled in your lap. You displayed them to him proudly so he could admire your handiwork. You remember his disinterest. It's at this point you're jolted back to the present, to reality, and you remember how you're not supposed to be remembering these things. As if you've made your way into your winter food supply and caught yourself red-handed with a fist in a container of pickled eggs. That jolt always happens when the tape of the memory reaches the inevitable point where something started to get ugly between you, making it impossible to fool yourself into thinking your relationship was worth salvaging. Even so, it's been long enough since your separation that you're no longer forcing yourself to focus on the hurtful or angry memories to justify your decision. The era of banishment of the happy memories has ended. As if the happy memories serve their full term in prison and are ready to rejoin the outside world. You can watch the happy memories collect their things, except that no one is coming to collect them, and order themselves an Uber into town. Who are you visiting? The driver asks them. They don't respond. There goes the picture frame on a bed of blowing leaves. It's a mystery from where it came, but the warm wind washes me and brings confetti. Oh, and ribbon strings, loose Polaroids, and other faded things. The happy memories are surprised to see how things have changed. There are entire aisles dedicated to yogurt at the grocery store. Elon Musk seems to have acquired both a jaw and a hairline, and there's a low hum of anger in everyone. The happy memories move to Fort Lauderdale and get a job shucking oysters at a beachside bar. One day at work, a waiter touches their back to get their attention. They jump and turn around quickly, wielding their shucking knife in what is definitely not the official oyster shucking stance. The happy memories wonder how long they've been curling their shoulders. They wonder how long it's been since they took a deep breath. You're not sure anymore what the purpose of preservation is. Perhaps you could dedicate an entire afternoon to remembering the good times, but adding new details to ruin them completely. Copy-pasting tidbits of ugliness into the scene. Will tainting the good memories do anything to cleanse you of him forever? Is it worth smearing the events of your own life, just to find relief? What if you regret the revisions? You wonder if your already shaky claim to sanity could survive another regret, considering the pile is already stacked so high. Maybe you could learn to forget wanting to remember. Yeah, we're just sort of like the things that you remember, you know. I mean, and, and, and for me, I don't know about for yourself, but for me, those are the things, for better or for worse, that you end up retaining, that you remember. And I mean, there's an odd kind of democracy to it. Like, one of my earliest memories are of walking down the street and seeing someone with long red hair breathing through their mouth. That boy passing out slips of paper that say you're going to die is sort of like, that's the punchline, you know. 
that's the punchline. That's what makes everything sort of funny. It's kind of under all the all the humor is 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 fear of death. I I, I mean I I I remember my grandmother who you know who who died some years ago. It isn't it isn't the big moments I guess that I remember you know, um, but it's just the small things like the way that her kitchen smelt when she was smoking or you know I mean. I think like those kind of tiny little things are the things that end up making up your whole life. Once when I was maybe eight or nine, my dad shared a story with me from his own childhood. It was about an incident that had happened at school to a classmate of his. Something bad. I can't remember what. Probably a cautionary tale against something I was already secretly guilty of. In recalling the events, he couldn't remember the child's name. I was mortified about this. How could he possibly forget the name of someone who he had spent days upon weeks, upon months of his life with? He told me, one day I too would forget the names of my classmates, maybe even the names of my teachers too. I refused to believe it would happen to me, but I was frightened enough of it possibly happening anyway that I began rehearsing the names of my teachers in sequential order before bed. I did this intermittently for years, just to remind myself they were all real, and I remembered them. And so long as I remembered them, an essential thread wove through the tapestry of my life and preserved everything for me. Like a stone you pick up and put in your pocket, its weight just heavy enough to remind you it's there should you reach out for it. There are now several years of my life where I'm forced to lean on different friends' accounts of events. Those are the memories which feel like a fever dream, transgressive, embarrassing, and, many of them, undeniably delicious. Some of them are the ones I am most afraid to share. A dilemma emerges. The need to retell and acknowledge, and the need to tuck away forever and pretend were mere cerebral sleights of hand. Lately, the spectrum of my memories feels almost sacred, as if I've been entrusted with the weight that comes with having journeyed through the extremes of life, those dizzy, heady memories where everything was happening at once, and my spirit seemed to soar beyond the realm of the tangible. Those are the vignettes of life which fill all the empty spaces, and as their forms fade, my curiosity is roused, and thus begins a desperate climb to archive. It doesn't feel enough to simply write them down. I must speak them aloud.